follow late service. And so if you came to early and, and you're here for Bible class, hang around a little while or come back in just a few minutes after service, uh, after you're over here in Bible class and, and we will enjoy uh, a delicious meal together. If you are our guest this morning, thank you so much for being with us. It encourages us that you're here. We'll give Paul a little bit longer, more formal introduction at the uh, beginning at worship service in a few moments. But uh, the good news is, the real good news is, if you were here at early service, you loved it. And we already have a report that the best lesson is coming up right now. We've already had requests for this uh, recordings of this particular lesson that hasn't even been delivered yet. Uh, so, so it's really, uh, it's in high demand already. And we just can't wait to hear uh, the wonderful message from God's word, from a wonderful messenger of God's word. Paul. When I first saw her, she was 22 years old. She walked into my counseling practice with a story. And all of us have a story. Her story went like this. Her parents, she didn't really know them. No raising. Oh, God. She married early to have someone, someone to love her, care for her, to live life with. By the time she entered my office at 22, she was already divorced. She had a small child. She was living with a man and had completely and utterly lost her way. Wondering what to do with her, I decided to let God speak to her. So I asked her to read for me 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. She didn't know where 1 Corinthians 13 was, so I opened my Bible for her. And I turned it, and I handed it to her, and she read. And as she started with verse 4, by verse 5, tears were streaming down her face. By verse 8, she almost couldn't speak. And she gently laid the Bible down and wept. And when she was able to find a place to gather herself back up, I will never forget her words. Why didn't someone tell me this? earlier I didn't know this is what love is I didn't know are you ready for those people at your church I don't know I don't go to church here so I'm not sure 
But I give it to you to think about. Several years later, different place, different woman entered my office to tell her story. And we all have a story. Her story different. Religious father, member of the church, abusive, strong, impressive when you see him. Nobody knows what goes on behind closed doors. The heartache, the heartbreak, the tears. As her story unfolded and the tears flowed, when she finally found a place she could speak again, she said these words, I would trade my soul to have one person who would love me. That's my world. That's what I do every day. Churches generally are not prepared for people like that, that are that broken, that hurting. I hope you are. I truly do. Because the world needs more places that call themselves families of Jesus to open their arms to people who never heard what love is, who don't know the meaning of love. After 25 years at this point, David, I can't believe I'm saying that. David will tell you that he came to Freed Hardeman and I was already there. Don't be mistaken, David's much older than I am. I just want that to be clear for the record. Please don't draw deductions by what you see. Just draw deductions based on what I tell you. I am convinced after 25 years in counseling and many years having my own practice, we don't teach people what love is. So our little people in the churches, they grow up in homes that don't operate according to godly principles oftentimes, not always, but often, And they'll ultimately rise up into the churches and they will become the leaders of the churches. They will be called elders. They will be called deacons. They will be called ministers. They will be called special servants. They will be called group leaders. They will be called any number of things depending on the programs you have. And when you grow up and you do not understand what love is, and I know you're sitting there and you're saying, I got it, I know what it is. Well, we'll find out shortly. You become an elder who doesn't get love. I remember having a biblical discussion over marriage, divorce and remarriage with an elder many years ago. And he took his Bible to me and he hammered the Bible with a finger and said, I don't need you to tell me what this means. To which I replied, I'm so happy you have all the answers. I don't. 
The more I study Scripture, the more questions I have and the less answers. Interestingly enough, so many other people study Scriptures, the more answers they have and the less questions they have. It begs the question, are they living in the same world I'm living in? I wonder. About two years later, David, his daughter, would go through a divorce. I'm not happy when things like that happen. My heart broke for him and his family. About a year later, I would see him in the church office. And he would say to me, after a couple of years of wrestling with a daughter and an ugly divorce and all the things that come with that, Paul, today... I've got fewer answers and I've got a lot more questions. And I said, brother, me too. So I'm not suggesting that with Scripture we can't find any answers because certainly we can. I'm simply suggesting that Jesus identified the mark for you and me to the world as not that we were people who worship without instruments, which I think we should be, It was not that we took the Lord's Supper every Sunday, which I think we should do that. It was none of the things we traditionally think when we think about the church of Christ. He said, all men will know that you are my followers by your love, one for another. And you can replace that and go, well, yeah, that's good, but we've got to meet the first day of the week and we list all the things that we we do, and that's fine. But I'm concerned that sometimes we have put some of the teachings of Scripture as the commandments of men and not the doctrine of Christ. One of the greatest teachings of our Lord was love. And trust me, if you ever invite me back for a revival service and you ask me to preach on hell, it'll be hotter in here than it's ever been. (laughs) I promise you that. Because I tell them to turn the air off before I start. So there. (laughs) I know how to do it, Dave. Now, people get up and leave, but when they do, people go, oh, he's going to hell. You know, they... So, I mean, you know, it's kind of an interesting psychological dynamic. My brain, you'd, if you got inside my head, you'd pay money to get out. I, I promise you that. Okay, so let's think about this. There's two stories I introduced this with, and you open God's Word to you and me in 1 Corinthians 13. Open it there with me. <clears throat> And I want you to please think about, as you turn there with me, to Henry Drummond's book, The Chance World. And when we don't have the love of God, let me show you how the world end up, in, ends up being psychologically for lots and lots and lots of people. It ends up like this. Henry Drummond said in The Chance World that the world, imagine the world in which the world is totally unpredictable. It goes like this. The sun may rise or it may not. The sun might suddenly appear one hour and at midnight might rise. The the, the moon might rise at 6 a.m. instead of the sun. And at midnight, the, the sun might rise instead of the moon. 
When children are born, they might have one head or they may have a dozen. Their heads may or may not be positioned between their shoulders. If one jumps in the air, he, he may or may not come down again. Although he came down yesterday doesn't mean he's going to come down today at all. Gravity and all other natural laws change from hour to hour. Today a child's body might be so light that it's impossible for him or her to descend from a chair to the floor. Tomorrow the child might descend with such force that he or she falls three levels of a, of a three-story house and lands near the center of the earth's core. In the final analysis, the chance world is a frightening world. Most of us prefer something like the world we got. We, we've got with some sense of predictability, some sense of surety and trustworthiness. You see, God's order in the home has got to be established. And it's got to be established on one of the greatest guiding principles of Scripture, the greatest, I believe, because Jesus, in answer to a question, said, the greatest commandment is this, love. Isn't that interesting? The Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That one command would radically, radically reestablish our homes if that one home, that, that one quality were, were, were put into the home. It would reestablish homes. The one quality of loving God more than you love yourself, more than you love your hobby, more than you love anything. That one command. And the second is likened to this. If you want to get into some psychology, and the reason my psychology centers around Scripture, although I teach five courses full-time at Fred Hardeman University in psychology and advanced psychology and in the graduate school, is this. This is the greatest psychology book ever written. And you people who are out there who say, psychologists and psychiatrists, you know, don't listen to them because they don't believe the Bible. Hello? I do. Now you might say, well, I met one, but he was a nut and he doesn't count. Okay. But I mean, but at least you met one that believes the Bible. It's the greatest book ever written. Ever written. Ever. You hear me? That's how I feel about it. So when I talk to people about reordering their minds, I show them this. And that includes elders too, because elders and elderships need to get their minds reordered around the book. And they need to stay focused on that. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second slide into this, and here's some great psychology. Love the person sitting on the pew next to you or the one that lives beside you in your neighborhood or... The one you sit beside at work, this is where it gets cool. Like you love yourself. Nobody wants to preach about that. David, next Sunday sermon, loving yourself. That's what we're going to preach on, okay? I won't be here because I'm leaving town, okay? But, but David, that, that's a great lesson. What does it mean to love yourself? Nobody wants to talk about that. Nobody wants to preach on that. So you got a fat, ball-headed guy this weekend. I'm going to tell you what it means, okay? Think about how in love with you you really are. Now, two things just happened. Some of you said, yes, I am, and I don't want him to know. And others of you said, I'm really not. May I suggest to you that none of us are as good as we believe we are. 
nor as bad as we think we are. All of us are somewhere in between. And so in John chapter 1, verse 18, don't turn from 1 Corinthians 13, trust me. Put it up on the PowerPoint. The word in the King James, New King James says, Jesus hath declared God unto us. Greek. Shalom laka va'ish va'isha. Hebrew. Como esta, amigo? Probably know what that one is. Spanish. Well, depending on whether you know those languages or you don't, can cause you some trouble. Beautiful word here in John 1.18. Jesus said through the Holy Spirit, John writing, Jesus came and landed on this earth. The word declared means he translated for us God. Think about that a moment. When you look at Jesus, you're looking at God. And he said, I came to show you and to help you understand what God is like. You know, I don't buy this thing anymore when people come to my office and go, I just don't understand God. I go, I do. I got him. Now, I don't understand everything about it, but the basic tenets and, and the stuff that really I can hang on to, I got it because I, I got Jesus. I mean, I, I'm into Jesus every day. I think you ought to be walking with Jesus every day. And if you're like Peter, Peter James, and John, who followed off his shoulder, and they, they looked over when he was kneeling down and riding in the dirt, and they walked with him when he stood beside the fig tree... I think we ought to be doing the same thing. We ought, as it were, always be peering just over the shoulder of Jesus to see what he's doing next in our lives. And what you will find, if you look carefully and you pay very close attention, you will find a Lord, a Savior, a great high priest, a brother, a friend, a master, a, a, a counselor, a prince of peace, a mighty God, a wonderful Savior who loves at the core of his being. Now, he got scared in the garden like I would have been. I mean, who wants to volunteer for murder today? Anybody? Not to murder somebody, but to be murdered. That's, we call it crucifixion, but the Chaldeans, many years before the Romans came along, figured out how to actually kill a man without killing him. To torture him without touching him after the initial induction occurred. And to watch him suffer as an enemy of theirs. And they thought crucifixion up. The Romans copied it from the Chaldeans, who were masters at murder. Our Lord was murdered. Now, right before he got murdered, he got scared. Can you imagine this evening if you knew at 6 o'clock this evening someone would enter your house to murder you in front of your entire family? How you'd be feeling right now? He got scared and he said, Lord, could you please get me out of this? And I'm trying to illustrate to you the core of love here. And now I'll make my point and we'll look at 1 Corinthians 13. Okay, y'all are a time church, so I got to watch that. Blow the horn on me, brother. 
Jesus said, I don't want to do this. What was he saying? What was he saying about you? What was he saying about you in the back? What was he saying about you when he said, Lord, I do not want to do this. That's what, please let this cup pass from me. We have, we have so cleaned up the crucifixion, we can't see straight. It was bloody, it was, it was bad, it was gory. The sweat and the tears coming out of the capillaries uh, of the Lord's temporal lobe here. As it were, blood, and it may very well, in fact, have been blood. If you study physiology much, it certainly could have been blood. And he is pulling up the ground and the earth, begging God to get him out of it. What does that mean about you? Nothing. He wasn't saying anything about you. He was talking about his fear. What he said about you will come next. And he begs and he pleads for God to let him be a sacrifice some other way than murder. But God, if the murder is the only way I can do it, I'll do it. And God said, that's the only way. And he said, your will is going to be done then. Now, question, did Christ feel like being murdered? Answer, I hope you know from Scripture Absolutely not, without equivocation, no. So, why did he let them murder? You know the song we sing, I don't know what number it is in your book. He could have called 10,000 angels. Well, the legions of angels he, called, he told Peter he could call when Peter pulled out the sword and tried to keep him from murdering Jesus. He said, put your sword away. I can call the legions of angels. He actually said, I can call 72,000 angels, but it doesn't sing very well. He could have called 72,000 angels. So we just say 10,000, and it works better for us. But Jesus literally said, I can call 72,000 angels out of heaven. So Matthew chapter 13, when he comes back again, he's coming with at least 72,000 angels. Go back to Egypt and study what one of those angels did to Pharaoh and his peeps, and you will be impressed. What will 72,000 do? It says it's an innumerable host, so I don't know. Maybe that was just the Jesus guard. I don't know. That if he didn't even say, hey boys, come on, let's get them. 72,000 pour out of heaven and Jesus backs up and said, I tried to tell y'all I could turn you into toast and you didn't believe me. Jesus was a real person. He may not have been a lot like me, but he was a human and so am I. And that's what I would have said to him. Hey, y'all like that? <laughs> yeah, what about that now? Uh-huh, yeah, you want to wag your head at me? See, I would have been a cool Jesus, okay? But I'd have had to find somebody else to be sacrificed because I, I wouldn't have been sinless. I'd have been mean, and I'd have said nasty things to people for, for rebuking me and putting me down and slamming my family, you know, so I wouldn't have been that good. Love your neighbor like yourself, he says. Jesus didn't want to be murdered, but I'm here to tell you today, this is what it says about you when he gets up from that prayer and he starts walking straight towards the people that were coming to get him. He was saying a lot about you during that little walk he took. 
And he so confounded the army of people that came out to get him that when he confronted him, they didn't know who he was. And they said, we're here to get Jesus. He said, here I am. And the Bible says that they retreated and fell over each other trying to get away from him. See, and I'm like Peter. I'm the guy that goes, yeah, you want some? Come on up here. And that's what Peter was doing. He's going to look at him retreating. It's on now. And Jesus said, no, no, I, it's, it's me. Come on. And Jesus said, come get me. He was talking about you. Friends, I want to establish something in your mind firmly today. Love is not a feeling. Love is a position you take regardless of how you feel. People enter my office by the thousands over the years and have said, I've fallen out of love. And I always ask them, what kind? And they look at me like, what do you mean? What kind of love have you fallen out of? <laughs> well, the only kind of, oh no, no. No, you haven't fallen out of godly love because you never had godly love. See, when you get firmly established in your mind that you're supposed to love another person like you love yourself, Jesus wants us to clearly understand what love is. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 4. I'm going to put this in writing sometime because what I did is I went through every single Greek word, <clears throat> found out the meaning from heaven, and I have transposed that into writing. And I want to share it with you this morning because if you're going to love yourself the way God wants you to so you can turn around and love somebody else like God wants you to, you've got to understand what godly love is. You remember the girl as we began our lesson this, this morning? If someone had only told me earlier, okay, I'm here now and I'm telling you now. Maybe, maybe it's later in your life. Maybe it's earlier in your life. I don't know when it is in your life, but I'm telling you now what godly love is. Look at it with me in verse 4. Love suffers long. The word is also used as patient. Love is patient. I want you to think about this. When you apply this, this, this order to, uh, of God's love, it, when you apply that to your home, what actually happens to you, the kids, your spouse, the grandparents, and everybody else? Love suffers long. Okay, It is patient. Now, question. David, when do you need patience most? Is Tracy here? Where is she? Is your wife here? Where is she? She's somewhere. Somewhere. Oh, she's not here. That's great. Preacher's wife who doesn't come to church. That's super. <laughs> I don't know what kind of church y'all run here, but they require my wife to attend. Anyway. Okay. Wow. Just blew my illustration. She's teaching fifth grade. Yeah. See? See how husbands make excuses for their wives. Yeah. I didn't see her last hour either. I guess she was teaching fifth grade last hour too. I'm just kidding. Okay, here's the point. David, when do you need patience the most? No, it's when you and Tracy are in the park walking and, and, and you're throwing down on the church, stuff you're never going to tell anybody else. And I tell you about brothers. And you're just, you're just enjoying the conversation. That's when you need patience, right? No. No. 
You need patience when she looks at you and crinkles that brow. Does she do that? I know it hasn't been recently, but, but I'm just saying. I'm married to a red-headed Irish woman. That's why my hair is no longer on my head. Well, she didn't pull out, I shaved, okay? But this is what red-headed Irish women do when they look at you and they're ill. And I go, and I know this doesn't help. I know that, okay? What, you got dandruff? <laughs> yeah, I know. There's fireworks at our house. It's always exciting. I mean, it's never dull. And then she'll go, you know, I don't have that. And, and then it's on like neck bone, you know. It's on, baby. Okay? But you need patience right then because you don't feel like being patient. But God's love says, hey, take hold of some of this in that situation and you'll succeed. So every quality I'm talking about is not when your life is peachy, rosy, king. I give an assessment sometimes, David, in my premarital counseling, and it comes out with a, a statistical reading called idealistic distortion. To put it in plain Jane terms, it just means young couples put on rose-colored glasses and they go, I love him so much. They go, you think you do, but he's stupid. <laughs> and you just don't know it yet. <laughs> you go find out. <laughs> yeah, it just takes them a while to get there. Okay? You need patience when you absolutely don't feel like you can stand the person another second in the church, in elders' meetings, with your wife, with your husband, with your kids. You need patience. You ever seen a father cuss a kid out? I have. Some of you have been those kids. Your daddy's cussed you out when you were a little kid. I've watched it. It's painful. And the one I happened to see was from a a good deacon friend of mine in the church of our Lord and Savior. Man, I had to pull him aside. Say, brother, what, what is happening to you? What are you doing? Get me to come back, Dave, and I'll talk. What in the round world is happening to our kids? Different story, different day. Love is patient. It means that you grab hold of it when you absolutely don't feel like it. Remember, Jesus was murdered for you not because he felt like it, but because he grabbed on to love for you. Girls, don't marry till you find a Jesus like that. Some of you, and I'm not joking about this, will never marry because you won't find it but you'll never pay me $80 to $125 an hour to come and talk to me. That's what my friends charge. I don't because I feel sorry for people. (laughs) They've already got enough bills, so I just almost charge little to nothing so they can come. Some of you will remain single a really long time. Apostle Paul said it's better to be single so you can devote energies to things that make an eternal difference. Love is kind. The word here, krustumuai, meaning I'm willing to help you 
or assist you. You see how little we actually have kindness in our home? Honey, would you please take out the trash for me? I'm trying to finish supper. I'll get it in a little bit. Man, we forget. And husbands can't understand when they come to counseling with me. They go, I just don't understand why she got so upset about the trash and wanted us to come to counseling. See how stupid men are? I mean, with the exception of present company excluded, okay? Some of y'all didn't get that. We're just a little dense, and he thinks it's because he didn't take the trash out. It's the 23 years of not taking the trash out, not paying attention to her, not listening to her. It's the 23 years, people. It's not that you didn't take out the trash last Tuesday. Kindness. And women, this applies for you just as much as it applies for men. Some of y'all are just downright mean. Y'all know how that's spelled, don't you? I-O-U. Okay? Mean. Y'all don't forget nothing. One of these days, I'm going to buy my wife one of those accordion files so I can just follow her, you know, and go, put it in. I know you're going to remember it, and I'll read it later. My wife and I have had an epiphany. I don't really know what it means, but it sounds good. Um, she said the other day, I told her, I said, baby, I, I appreciate how sweet you are. And she said, the Lord has delivered me because I have forgiven and I'm free. And she meant that. And I said, thank you for forgiving. See, our journey of 23 and a half years, 24 on December the 21st at 1 o'clock in the afternoon this year, has been long because she married somebody who wasn't like Jesus. And by the grace of God, she has been kind to me. I would not be standing before you today without a very kind and dear wife. That's what kindness means. When I'm sick of you, when I can't stand you, when I hate even looking at you pulling up the driveway because you're so selfish. I'm going to be kind to you. That's what my wife has done for me. That's what kindness means. Does not envy. That word means zealously or zealously affected in a bad sense. You can write down Acts chapter 7 verse 9 and James chapter 4 verse 2. It does not parade itself. It means it never brags. It doesn't ever boast. Now, if this is in your home, you've got a lot of work to do as far as love is concerned. And parading means it never elevates itself over another person or it never uses the other person despitefully. David, can you imagine if we just get two or three of these things in our homes, what could happen? Now, look at the word puffed up. This means to inflate, blow, or puff up. In the New Testament, it's used with pride or self-conceit, 1 Corinthians 4, 6, 1 Corinthians 4, 18 and 19, 5, 2, 8, 1, chapter 13, verse 4, and Colossians chapter 2, verse 18. Now I want to get to this one. 
Verse 5, does not behave unseemly or rudely, meaning in an indecent, unseemly, or unbecoming manner. Now, in verse 5, the verb is used meaning uh, to, to ne- it's a negative qualification of the word love. It's the exact opposite. If you are rude, you are defying God. If you behave in an unseemly manner as an elder, minister, wife, husband, child toward you, if you behave in an indecent way towards them, you have defied God. Because these are commands, people. These are not suggestions. Does not seek its own. In other words, it never seeks anything because the individual wants that. So guess what, Trey? Is this your wife? Well, at least she comes to church. Okay. (laughs) What's your name? Elizabeth. You should have a husband after today, if you didn't have him before, that says, this is not about me. This dance between me and you of marriage, it takes two people. I can't do the dance by myself, so to speak. And I know Church of Christ people don't dance, okay? So I understand that. It's a metaphor, okay? It's a metaphor. Um... It takes two to do this dance. So this dance is not going to be about me. It's going to be about you. That's what that quality means. You never seek to find meaning in yourself. You seek to find it in her fulfillment. Okay, very quickly. Let's go to provoked. Is not provoked. It means it is not angry or indignant about anything. Now, David, this one blew me away. Thinks no evil. Sounds like, you know, well, you're a spiritual person. No, it doesn't. That's not what it means. Thinking no evil means to reason, reckon, or impute. Now, I want you to think about the word evil. Evil is actively causing harm or hurt towards another person. And so logically we get this idea that when, when, the, when the scripture says you think no evil, that you are not to logically think of anything to do to your neighbor, to your spouse, to your children that may even possibly cause them harm. That one blew me away. I'm reading that in my office and I'm digging the Greek out and I'm going, wow, this is kicking me in the shin. How many times have you purposefully said stuff or or, or, or implied stuff or acted in ways that hurt people. And, and the, the phrase, thinks no evil, means you never even let it enter your mind. See how far we've got to go? You, you know, when I told you my journey was a long journey, hey, how about your journey? I, I read this stuff and I get into it and I'm like, wow, I've got so much work to do. Verse 6, rejoices not in iniquity. This means not to create harm by not telling the truth. Rejoices in truth. This means that you take whatever you've been lying about in your your heart and you put it on the table and you expose it to the light of Jesus Christ. And that is one of the hardest things I've found for human beings to do because we don't want to tell our secrets. And God says, the love I give exposes the secrets so you can be free and not a slave. Finally, notice verse 7, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Those are explicative in and of themselves, endures all things. Now this is the kicker, verse 8. 
love never fails. Okay, so if you've been in a failed marriage, so to speak, it's interesting these terms we put. If you, if you have been in a marriage that has failed, okay, I'll tell you why it failed. Because 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, were, were not at the, the stern of the ship. They weren't guiding the ship. Some other kind of love was. Now, here's what worldly love says. Worldly love says, as long as we're feeling good about each other, things are going good, we're good. We are good. Those marriages fail every day. Those relationships with our neighbors fail every day. Well, he put up the property fence three inches over on mine. I'm going to sue him. I got a wonderful story about that. I'll tell it another time. My neighbor threatened to hit me in the nose. I almost dared him because my four-wheel drive nicked part of her yard. And she marched herself over, put her fist up in my face, and said something real manly as a 90-pound little 80-year-old woman. I could just bop you. And I wanted to go, please do. Please do. That's what I wanted to do. But I said, Miss Nettie, what is wrong? You messed my yard up. I said, oh, I didn't know I did. So I marched all the way down my property, several acres, over to hers. And I was putting up a fence. And my four-wheel drive had pulled up a piece of turf on her pasture. This big. I am not joking you. And it was flopped over. If I had a toupee, I could flop it. It looked like a toupee. (laughs) Flopped over. And she goes, right there. And I went, here? And she said, yes, right there. You know what I did? I tenderly put it back in place and I patted it down and I said, is that better, Miss Nettie? And she said, well, I guess. (laughs) And I said, I'm so sorry, Miss Nettie. And listen, if I ever do anything like this to hurt you, you call me. Let me know, Miss Nettie. But you don't have to do this to me, Miss Nettie. Just, just talk to me. And I hope what I reflected that day that I just wanted to throw her in my pond. <laughs> See, I'm not saying I always have Christian thoughts. I hope what I showed was something like maybe what Jesus would have shown when he's like, you've got to be joking. You're griping about that. You've got 15 acres over here, and you can pick out with a microscope three blades of grass. That's what I wanted to say, but I didn't. That's when biblical love kicks in. You're patient, and you're kind, even when you've been... That, that was wrong of her to do that. Her limbs fall on my fence all the time. You know what I do? I just get them off. Of course, I throw them back on her side, but I, I get them off. They're her limbs. I mean, I don't want to get sued for having her limbs, you know. Come on. I'll pitch them back over on hers. When we start employing love in our relationships, love in our marriages, love in our homes, our kids are different. Our marriages are different. When people look at us, the words of Jesus really are true. When others see you, They will give glory to God because of what they see. Try biblical love today and see what happens.
Man, you're welcome. Thanks for letting me pick on you, man. That's, that's a pleasure. <laughs>